This is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 2, The Magic in the Cards, Part 2. In Part 1, I explained how Richard Garfield had started a whole new genre of card games, the collectible card game, with Magic the Gathering. Now, in Part 2, we'll look at the impact that Magic has had since 1993. Garfield's conception of an infinitely expandable card game had now become a reality, but I believe the real reason for Magic's success then as now stems from the fact that, like Bridge, it is really two games in one. Let me explain. In Bridge, you play a series of hands, and each hand is split into two parts. First, there's the bidding phase, where you bid for a contract, how many tricks the higher bidding team thinks they can take. This is made difficult because no one knows exactly what cards anyone else has. It's not just guesswork. There are elaborate bidding systems which allow players to signal to each other, opponents as well as teammates, approximately what you have in your hand. But you never entirely know for sure until the hand is actually played out, which is the second part. The execution of the contract, or the defense against it, relies on the information players gleaned from the bidding, yes, but it requires a whole different skill set, with techniques like drawing trump, roughing, finessing, and so on. There are entire books just on bidding, and just on the playing. Two interdependent parts. Remember, it was Garfield's intention that magic should encourage players to build decks so as to maximize the power of their cards, and in that it certainly succeeded. Deck building is a huge part of any Magic player's experience. First, you have to decide what one, or at most two types of land you want to base your deck around. Each land type specializes in certain kinds of cards. Green has lots of creatures, blue has lots of counterspells, and so on. Dual land decks are harder to play because you have to draw both types of land to make your powerful cards work, but the payoffs can be huge. Then you have to decide what style of play suits you best. Aggro decks are all about doing damage through direct attacks and creatures. Control decks are sort of the opposite, with cards that will help you absorb damage or counterattack spells. And in general, keep your opponent tied up. Mid-range decks are sort of a mixture of the two, where you spend the early game on defense getting ready to lay down some super damaging creatures later in the game. Finally, combo decks are built around individual cards. Everything is about getting that card or combination of cards into your hand and onto the table. They can be very vulnerable, but really satisfying to pull off. Every month, Wizards of the Coast releases a new set of cards, which gives fans of each land and each playstyle new strategy options, and triggers a reevaluation of Magic's meta. In tabletop, meta is the term that refers to the discussion about the strategy and psychology behind a game. What works, what doesn't work, moves and counter moves, and in games with social deduction, which we'll cover in episode 8, who's on your side and who's a dirty, stinking traitor. But the thing about magic is, the best deck in the world doesn't guarantee success. You still have to play out the match, and therefore subject yourself not only to the randomness of the cards, but also the skills and psychology of yourself and your opponent. 
Here's where there is plenty of room for bluffing, misdirection, and intimidation, not to mention straight-out tactical card play. It is these two distinct yet interdependent phases, deck building and card play, that made Magic a game-changer and a hit from its appearance in 1993. The original print run was 2.1 million cards and yet sold so quickly that Wizards were reluctant to advertise because they couldn't keep up with the demand. And even as Wizards released Magic, Garfield was already working on the first expansion. It was his intention that the game would reinvent itself, changing its name as well as the design on the backs of the cards with every release. The first new set was going to be called Magic Ice Age. But this idea was abandoned when Wizards realized that this meant that cards from different expansions could never be combined. Just knowing which set a card came from gave opponents more information than Garfield intended. This is before card sleeves were invented. Besides, from a marketing standpoint, it made little sense to change the name of a game every few months or years. And that's why the game is still called Magic the Gathering, officially abbreviated as M colon TG, and why the backs of every single card look basically the same now as they did in 1993. By 1995, Wizards of the Coast were sponsoring contests with cash prizes, which they called the Pro Tour. People were beginning to be able to make money from playing Magic. As for Garfield, the success of Magic made him a wealthy man and an object of adoration and obsession to millions of fans around the world. He could have ridden the Magic train forever, but he did the unthinkable instead. He stepped away. As he admitted in an interview, he was essentially a loner, not a collaborator, and Magic had grown so big that the need to constantly be developing new cards and card sets was more than just a one-person job. Plus, as is the way with many mathematicians, he'd already proven his theorem, the concept of a collectible trading card game. The rest, as they say, was trivial, quote-unquote. So although Garfield would return every few years to look in on things and work on some later sets, he was ready to move on. He'd already thought of some ways to tweak Magic's format and a theme that would mesh with those ideas perfectly. And we'll talk about that later in this episode. The real proof of Garfield's concept was the number of imitators which were published in its wake. After all, reasoned designers and publishers, players love this collectible card game concept, but not everyone wants to be a wizard. So you had CCGs about vampires, samurai-era Japan, the Star Wars universe, and even the SimCity video game. It was this last game, the SimCity card game, which finally got me hooked into CCGs. When I first read about magic in the pages of Games Magazine, I knew that I could so get sucked down that rabbit hole of buying pack after pack after pack of cards, just like when I was a kid buying hockey cards. But I was fresh out of school and struggling to make a living. So I knew that that was not a door I could go through right now. On the other hand, I'd been playing SimCity from its first release in 1989, so the idea of a card game that tried to do the same thing was catnip. For a few months, I was transported back to my childhood collecting hockey cards. The excitement of opening each pack of boosters, the thrill of finding a much-wanted rare card, the resigned accumulation of having umpteen copies of dull common cards, 
and on top of that, there was a game to be played. Alas, though it had a good design behind it, including Darwin Bromley, who we'll meet again in episode 5, the game was overcomplicated, requiring players to keep track of too many things at the same time, like population, electrical connections. Table toppers call a game like that fiddly. Furthermore, the published rules had more than their fair share of holes and ambiguities. Using the Internet Wayback Machine, I found an email I'd written in June 1996 to another SimCity CCG player who had posted a solitaire challenge on their fan website. My letter starts, Thanks for an interesting challenge. Stuff like this is what's going to make SimCity the card game a long-time brain teaser. Let's pause for a moment to savor the irony of that statement. After that, there are four paragraphs explaining my solution to his challenge, interpreting the various ambiguities in the rules. Then, four more paragraphs explaining my chess-like notation for the solution. Remember, folks, this is when the internet was text-only, so I couldn't just take a picture or send a video. I remember feeling the thrill of inventing a tool I was sure was going to become a world standard. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was not to be. The publishers, Mayfair Games, released four city-specific expansions to the SimCity card game. Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York City, and Atlanta. And in my research, I saw that they were planning to release one for Toronto, my hometown. But demand had tailed off, and they let the game die. I held on to my SimCity card game cards for more than 15 years and then needed to downsize when I moved, but I couldn't even give them away at that point, so... I chucked them all down the recycling chute of my building. It was a sad end to a promising idea. Fortunately for Mayfair Games, as you will hear next episode, by this time they'd published another game that more than made up for the debacle that was SimCity, the card game. The only other CCG I ever got into in a big way was 2001's Harry Potter trading card game, which I discovered when we were reading the books to my son when he was little. It turned out that it was, and is, a very credible introduction to magic-style CCGs. Instead of lands, you play lesson cards, potions, charms, transfigurations, and so on, to give yourself the knowledge you need to play your characters, creatures, and items. Plus, the game was only recently dead at that point, i.e. no longer in print, and that meant that cards were easy to find, and yet not ridiculously expensive, which is what happens when the secondary market for a game dries up as copies end up in collectors' hands. Meanwhile, things were happening in Japan which would expand the audience for collectible card games beyond even Magic's wildest dreams. The Nintendo Game Boy had been released in 1989 and had been an immediate success. As a popular handheld console, it attracted hundreds of titles, including, in early 1996, a pair of games centered around collecting, training, and dueling with a variety of fantastical creatures. And those games were called Pokemon Red and Pokemon Green. The games were the brainchild of Satoshi Tajiri, who based the idea on his childhood obsession with beetle collecting. Although sales of Pokémon were initially not great, by the end of the year the game had become so popular that Media Factory, the Japanese magazine publisher, commissioned and issued the first set of the Pokémon trading card game. The tagline for Pokémon was, gotta get them all, and now fans could collect Pokémon in the real world as well as on their Game Boys. 
for millions of children, the appeal of the cards ended there as fodder for trading, even though the underlying game was solid enough, based as it was on magic. As of March 2018, 25.7 billion Pokemon cards have been sold worldwide. By comparison, according to Wizards, over 20 billion magic cards were sold between 2008 and 2016. There have also been a slew of Pokemon-themed games with a board. Pokemon Master Trainer, Pokemon Monopoly, Pokemon Battling Coin Game, and my favorite, Pokemon Munchin Munchlax, where players launch chips at, at a motor-powered rotating head of Munchlax. Batteries not included. Another Japanese franchise, which has arguably done better than Pokemon, is Yu-Gi-Oh!, which began life first as a manga, then a TV series, and finally as a CCG in 1999. Over 20 billion cards of Yu-Gi-Oh! have been sold. And like Magic and Pokemon, there's a robust global competition scene. And like Pokemon, there are plenty of non-card-based tabletop spin-offs for Yu-Gi-Oh! too. But aside from Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh!, only a few CCGs have attracted even a fraction of Magic's fanbase, including Garfield's next project, Netrunner, released in 1996. Netrunner had a cyberpunk theme very influenced by books like William Gibson's Neuromancer. It broke the template which Garfield had himself set of each player having the same goals and drawing from the same set of cards. Netrunner was asymmetric. One player was the evil corporation trying to accomplish its evil agenda and used one set of cards, while the other was the runner, or hacker, trying to break in and steal all that vital and profitable information, and they used a second different set of cards. The corporation's cards represented servers and defensive programs, while the runner's deck was full of viruses and attack programs. Another innovation which helped immerse players in the theme was that the corporation played most of its cards face down. The runner was therefore in a constant state of uncertainty about what they were going to face, which the corporation did well to exacerbate using bluff and misdirection. Unfortunately, despite Garfield's superstar status and rave reviews for the game and a rabidly loyal fanbase, Netrunner did not make the kind of money Wizards had hoped, and it allowed the game to die after the final expansion was released in November 1999. But Netrunner did not actually die. It was only mostly dead. In 2012, Garfield teamed up with Fantasy Flight Games to reboot Netrunner as an LCG, a living card game. This is a term Fantasy Flight coined for card-based games that were infinitely expandable like CCGs, but not collectible. There weren't booster packs. Players didn't have to rely on the randomness of their buys. Instead, expansions were released every couple of months with the same cards in them so that every player had access to every new card that came out. The new version was called Android Netrunner to avoid copyright infringement with the original and because it was set in Fantasy Flight's cyberpunk Android universe for which they had a bunch of other games. But I'm still going to call it Netrunner to save time. And even though fans of the original game griped a bit because their cards and deck could not be used in the new version, it was an instant hit. Tournament play began almost immediately and over 50 expansions appeared starting in 2012. But then... In 2019, Fantasy Flight announced that they were pulling the plug, and once again, Netrunner was being consigned to the trash bin. 
And once again, the fan base refused to let it die and are generating new content for it as we speak. Copyright be damned. But Garfield was still not done tinkering. In 2018, he returned again to the CCG world with a game called Keyforge, Call of the Archons. Except in Keyforge, it's not the individual cards that are collectible, but the decks themselves. Each one is a unique, not quite random amalgam of 36 cards drawn from a pool of over 300 possible cards. And instead of being wizards trying to destroy their opponents, players are ancient engineers racing to forge three magic keys, each of which requires a certain amount of the magic currency in the game known as Ember. In his designer notes, Garfield explains the idea for Keyforge came from missing the days when sealed mode was more popular in Magic. This was where players just opened six booster packs and constructed decks on the spot. He also wanted to get away from card trading and deck building completely and just focus on gameplay. It's still too early to know whether Keyforge will do as well as Magic or Netrunner, but Garfield's name on the box has been more than enough to generate significant interest in it. Already, Keyforge Tournament Play is attracting good numbers at my local game store, and perhaps more importantly, third-party sellers are jumping in with Keyforge-themed sleeves, deck boxes, and player mats. Clearly, some people think there's enough of a market for this Keyforge stuff. There's no question in my mind, though, that Magic the Gathering was the first game-changer of the modern tabletop era. Before Garfield and Magic came along, cards were either for playing or collecting, not both. Magic redefined what a card game could be. If I were to compare Richard Garfield to another artist, it would be the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Each pioneered an entirely new style with which they became instantly identified and which led to countless imitators. But instead of resting on their laurels, they kept innovating over long and successful careers. And of course, Garfield is still going. Both focused on people's experience of their art, right with his belief in organic architecture, which was in harmony with humans and their environment, and Garfield, who always begins by asking himself what experiences he wants his players to have as they play the game. The next game changer happened just as Magic was cresting its first wave of popularity in 1995. But to tell that story, we have to go back half a century and halfway around the world. That was part two of episode two of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs>